0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 7th, we are studying Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to God. And now that we live under his grace, we are no longer under the law. But what about that law? How were we freed from it? And does our freedom from it mean that there was something wrong with it, that it was sinful or evil? St. Paul turns to questions such as these in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you very much for having me back, Tim. Glad to be with you. So we're looking at Romans 7 today. Give us some some context in the letter to the Romans. Where has Paul been that leads up to his argument in today's text? Sure. Well, so...
1: Romans begins, Romans 7 begins with, or do you not know? So it is good to look at the context. In 6, you know, we have this idea that, excuse me, as you said earlier, that we are now under grace, no longer under the law. And he's established now that the regenerated person, the one who is in Christ, must strive to avoid sin at all costs. But... Because of this idea that we our sins are forgiven, and frankly, so easily from our point of view, I believe that Paul's warning us against this so-called cheap grace—the idea that you know if God forgives sins because of Jesus, then it doesn't really matter if we keep on sinning—and of course, then that's where we get that famous passage about that we don't you know sin so that grace may increase. Um, so, chapter six is bringing us all the way to the point where. He's trying to drive home the point that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and now he wants to use an example, which is a lot of seven, at least the first part of our text for today, uh, to drive home this point of exactly what it looks like to not be uh, under the law. Why is it that we're no longer under the law? And then he'll have two caveats, a couple contrapuntals along the way, because, you know, our sinful natures want to misuse even our Christian freedom. And so he's going to address some of those issues, too.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and jump right in, then. We're in Romans chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That's the text we're going to look at today, Romans seven, verses one through thirteen. So, Pastor Bill, you said he starts off with this this question: Do you not know? I'm speaking to those who know the law. Is do they know this? Do they not know this? What what's how's how's Paul introducing this to the Romans? Well, <clears throat> initially by saying, "Or don't
1: you know?" He is. The Greek grammar actually suggests here that he has some doubt about their their knowledge of this, not, not, the, uh, not the, the knowledge of the law, but rather the knowledge of do they understand really what he's been saying in Chapter 6, that they have been freed from the law. So he uses the, this, this – what he's going to set up is he's using this example of a very common, well-understood legal situation that everybody would have kind of been able to grasp. … to demonstrate this. But one of the questions is when he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law, what law is he speaking about specifically? Mm. And there, there is a little division in the literature about this. Um, I, I'll reveal my position, and that is he's speaking about the Mosaic Law. Uh, is he? But the question is: Is he making a shift to speak to Jewish Christians among all those in Rome when he says, Are "Those of you who know the law, I'm speaking to you who know the law," or is he speaking to all the Christians that even if they weren't Jewish, because they would have been familiar with the Mosaic law, um, they would have been brought up in Mosaic teachings, um, and I, I think probably both. You know, the the Jewish believers, and then. Um, there should be an expectation that because at this time Christianity is really a Jewish sect in the in the eyes of most people, they would have been brought up in the in the tenets of the Old Testament. They would have understood and interacted with people who were bound to the Mosaic Law, even if they were never Jewish themselves, or they weren't Jewish and then they never you know were proselytized to be Jews. They would have understand the concept that, or at least would have been taught the concept that Jesus came to fulfill the Mosaic law. Um, but there's also this idea that the majority of Christians in Rome are Jews. Um, so th- there, there's that first initial question, which law is he speaking of? And I believe it's the Mosaic law. And when he says to those who know the law, who is he speaking to?
0: And I believe it's all Christians. Um, well, uh, well, yeah, and I think I think that makes sense to, to understand law here as is- – so let me let me let me see if I can follow up on that. I uh, I'm speaking to those who know the law. This would be all Christians know the law in, in the sense that this is this is God's word to them. And so they would have been, even those who had not were not of the Jewish background, they would have been familiar with the Word of God. This is what would have been taught to them because that would have been the, the scriptures that they would have had. So they would have known the the Mosaic Law. And and yet at the same time, I mean I think what paul says in this human argument that he's going to make it it makes sense beyond the mosaic law particularly too that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives particularly the example of marriage he's going to draw from i think even without the mosaic law in particular what he says makes sense especially when you i mean i'm thinking back to to romans chapter one where paul is is beginning to lay out his case for the unrighteousness of all and And he talks about how how people should have known God in some sense because of his eternal power, because of his divine nature, things that they had perceived in the creation, and among the things they should have perceived in the creation was this matter of of marriage what what a man is or what a woman is, and the, just the the natural thing that they they go together in marriage and so i think i mean even and i'm, I'm not, i don't know, i don't think I disagree with you bester boo, but I think even beyond that what paul says here makes sense apart from the very specific confines of of mosaic law does that does that make sense what i'm saying i don't think i disagree with you no you don't trying to we're,
1: we're not in disagreement at all um i mean there are some commentators that want to make this <clears throat> this point about how um it doesn't have to be specific the mosaic law as you said because this especially the specific, specific example he used regarding marriage would have been well understood in Roman laws, you know, in Athens or Sparta, everywhere you would have went, you would have had this this similar understanding. So the 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 Jews didn't have a monopoly on this this particular example. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the danger, though, um, is either trying to make it apply just to Jewish Christians or make it apply to just um, people outside the church. So your perspective is definitely the way to take it, and that is that. While this is applying to Christians, it has something to say about the Christian's relationship with the Mosaic law It is also something that can be understood universally uh, as demonstrated by the specific example he uses. So I think we're in in perfect agreement.
0: So let's go into that specific example that he uses because I don't think it's – I mean – how he closes verse 1 the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives well that I means like well of course paul the law is only <laughs> binding on a on a living person but i think the the particular example he chooses from the law is is not an accident so so take us into to the specific example he chooses to, to make use of here in verses 2 and 3
1: well, sure, but I do want to take one step back and, you know, sure. yeah, it seems obvious to us that the law is binding only on a person so long as he lives. Um, and while we might read that and say, oh, uh, duh, <laughs> but Paul is obviously, as you know, going to make a connection to dying to the law. So even though it seems obvious, it, it, it comes back again and again throughout his explanation, um, and it does even in this specific example. So this example that he uses um, is uh, a Sixth Commandment issue, is what we would call it. Uh, But it's also a really important thing. In a time when the lifespan was less than now and widows would have been pretty vulnerable, um, people would have known or at least wanted to know what to do in the specific example that he gives. And that is, if a woman's husband dies, must she stay celibate and single forever? And I'm sure this is a question that was posed throughout all of their remembered history. And there's an answer. And the answer he gives isn't new revelation. He is explaining again, kind of like a parable. He's explaining again something from their common knowledge to drive home his point. And that is, if a woman's husband dies, then no, she is free to remarry. And if she remarries or is is bound to another man while she's bound to her her husband, then she's an adulteress. Um, so if a woman's husband dies, the marital law dies with the death of the husband. She's released, she can remarry. Um, so it's it's the the questions that are brought up by this example though is that what who's doing the dying and how should we understand this for the broader context. So specifically, we know that the married woman dies. I mean, sorry, the married woman's husband dies and she's released from the law. But Paul is speaking about Christians dying to the law. So in the marital example, the woman who's released doesn't die, but rather her husband. And that's where some there's some confusion. Uh, if if we are to identify in this small example, we're, I don't think it's supposed to be an allegory one-to-one, but if we're to identify with the woman, the Christian, being freed from the law of marriage just as the Christians are freed from the burdens of the Mosaic law, then, <laughs> then why isn't she the one dying, so to speak? Well, A, then it would have made much sense, but B, one way to understand this and sort of relieve the awkwardness is to consider that either – With the husband, the marriage died, or when the husband dies, the marital contract, the marital law dies with him, and so the wife, figuratively speaking, dies. She's still a woman, but she's not a wife. She's something different now. She's no longer under the regulations of the law that she was previously. So this is a specific situation that they would have all understood, and he's trying to build upon this common knowledge to get them to understand this being released from something that you previously uh, were bound to, and uh, not that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's not a bad thing to be bound to your spouse, and uh, I think that's the the stage he's setting up for his argument.
0: Right. I I think your the the awkwardness as you're talking about there is a it's a good reminder to us to be careful how far we how far we take something in as you said the one to one correspondences and I, I we would we need to be careful here with the one to one correspondence as as just another example there's a danger to do this say in Jesus parables where we want to find a one to one detail everything that Jesus says in his parable has to correspond to something else that's that's not the way parables are intended to function. And and neither is that the way Paul seems to be intending this to function either that that for every specific detail he lays out in his example it's going to correspond to something else in in what he's saying about the Christian and the relationship to the law. Rather I think that the bigger picture here is Paul is using an example of of the of what frees you from a law is is death. And marriage is a great example of that because when one spouse dies, then the other one is set free from the the bond, the law that's between them. As you said, that's not a bad law in that case, but it, but it is that death has provided the freedom for the other, or that's been the effect on the other. Again, we're, we don't want <laughs> to say that marriage is bad. It's not. It's, it's good. That bond between husband and wife is, is a good gift of God given to Adam and Eve before the fall into sin. So it's, it's good, but there is there's the freedom that comes from the death, that they're no longer bound to each other. And I think that, that basic point, that's what, what Paul is driving at, is that, look, here in, in this human example, death sets the one free and is no longer bound to follow this law. So now death, your death this time, has set you free from, from this law. And, and now, I, having said that, so we want to be careful how far we push it, but on the other hand, I do think there are some examples that we can point to in the rest of Scripture where this matter of, of marriage, again, is not an accident on Paul's part. When we start to think about the relationship between Christ and his people, the church, being a marriage, and, and the the way that Paul takes this. So I, I think, I, having said all that, <laughs> what, what you've said is, is helpful counsel to us. And hopefully then sets the stage for us to understand the point that Paul is making with this, not taking it too far, but also delving into the richness of, of Scripture. Does that, does that set the stage for you, Pastor Boo?
1: Oh, yeah, I think so. Okay. I, an interesting aside, however, when I was looking up Luther on the topic, um, in his, uh, it was 1517, in his lectures on Romans, when he goes into explaining this, he actually has a, He points out that the freedom that she has is uh, to remarry, but then he makes a point to say that she doesn't have uh, to – she has the freedom to decline the burdens of married life. So on that subject of married life not being a bad thing, Luther kind of early on is saying, um, just so you know, this isn't requiring her to remarry. In fact, she has the freedom to and again, his words, decline the burdens of married life. This was about eight years before he ended up being married himself. So I wonder if his <laughs> opinion on the burdensomeness of marriage had changed.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, fair, fair enough. Right. And that, that, that's a good point. Although, I mean, you know, any and this is probably another discussion for a different different show. But I mean, any any human relationship that we enter into is going to have burdens upon it. And and we talked about this yesterday. When it comes to the the slavery that we have to God, as Paul lays it out in Romans six, it is not the same sort of slavery that we know from our human experience. It, it's a it's a joyful slavery, a, a slavery of a or a service of a son, not the service of of someone who's held in terror under tyranny, but but a son who who knows his his beloved father. Uh, a subject who knows his beloved king, and and the same is is true, I think of, of In fact, we talked about that yesterday with with marriage, that that the bond between a husband and wife, and you know, what Paul says about uh, in Ephesians chapter five, the husband sacrificing himself for the sake of his wife, the the wife's, the same sort of joyful. Burden that that we bear in marriage. Anyways, that's that's probably yes, another another <laughs> another topic for another show. So, Pastor Boot, take us then into into verses f- four and following, as Paul begins to take this human example and apply it to these Roman Christians.
1: So he says, "Likewise, my brethren," um, and then the likewise is not that you know this example of marriage is going to prove his point, but sort of in the same way. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. The marital example, as you just said, as we both said, is a symbol. It's not really an allegory, even though history has proven that the the church fathers and others have tried to allegorize it. You know, One part's the soul and one part's the law and one – but no, it's just a a symbol to help explain the point. And so just as the death of the husband – Released the woman from the law of marriage. Christ's death. See, we die, but we die through the body of Christ. So it's Christ's death that releases the Christian from the bondage of the law. And so now, um, just as it says, so that we may uh, belong to another. You may belong to another. In the case of the woman, it was she's free to remarry. In the case of the Christian, we now belong to the risen Christ, and it is the risen Christ, and our marriage to that, as you said, the use of marital imagery throughout the scriptures is uh, rarely an accident, if ever, that marriage then gives us access to all the, the, the benefits and privileges that comes with being married to Christ. But even this whole idea, likewise, you have also died, is a is a passive statement. So it is not um, you've sacrificed yourself just as the husband in the example, there's no indication he sacrificed himself so his wife could marry another man, but rather you have been made dead, put to death even through the death of Christ. And so now we are free from our previous obligation of the Mosaic law, which is why I tend to lean a little bit more towards that. And now we are free under grace to then bear fruit for God, to serve in our new relationship with God, which is not one where we're striving to keep the the, the law perfectly, but rather one where we live out our our sanctified life um, under grace mm-hmm. um, pri- prior to Christ, there were you know obligations to keep god's law perfectly, even if it were ultimately impossible because of our nature and ultimately would point for our need for a savior, still, you know, even in the New Testament, be 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 perfect as your father is perfect. But through the death of Christ, we then have been released, just like the death of the husband. Our obligations to live under the law have been lifted. And we live, of course, now under grace.
0: Hmm. I, I, that, I appreciate you pointing out that our death happened in Christ, and that's that's a connection back to chapter six, where where Paul talks about what baptism does for us. That in baptism we have been crucified with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. And, and as you said, that's a that's a passive thing. We've we've been put to death with Christ. It's not something that we did to ourselves. This is something that that God has done to us in Christ as we've been connected to Him in holy baptism, and and so we've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Now we belong to him, as Paul says, and now we start to, to bear this fruit for God. And, and you've got an interesting thought here in your notes, Pastor Boo, is how, how far, what is that bearing fruit? Are we pushing marriage again here, or, or what's, what's Paul getting at with the fruit for God? Right, so, so we bear
1: fruit, and if you think of being fruitful and multiplying in the con- context of marriage, you think of having children um again chapter six but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of god the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its eternal life and now here we have that fruit paul's bringing it up again so is this a fruitful marriage bearing children um or is it or is he changing the symbolism just to that of fields and trees which is also very common throughout scriptures when it comes to our uh, doing good works or, or living uh, a Christian life by the help of God. And um, I, I honestly don't think that it matters too much, I mean, not for the point, it's very academic. But it's interesting, in the first example before the likewise, the woman and her relationship with her husband who died and, her, and the permission to marry anew, it doesn't mention anything about children. So perhaps he is really just shifting the symbolism here, and we might we might end up taking it too far. I mean, on the one hand, we are raised through Christ in order to bear fruit for God, just as the marriage uh, is for the bearing of children, which is a fruit. On the other hand, there's this idea that the fruit that you get before Christ is a bad fruit. It leads to death. So... A marriage that does not or cannot bear fruit, we don't want to go so far as to say that's somehow intrinsically sinful. I mean it becomes very tricky. So I think that since children aren't specifically mentioned in two, two or three, we should probably just avoid that, that topic because I think we'd be speaking more than the Bible does. But it's definitely yeah. something interesting to consider.
0: Now that that makes sense to me that that we don 't want to again we don 't want to push things too far farther than the text really points us toward, and i don 't think the text points us toward that that sort of association however this this matter of bearing fruit is what pushes Paul forward into verses five and six, where I, I think he begins to to carry this to its its logical conclusion, this matter of being freed from the law has now set us free to bear the fruit that god has given because we weren't bearing that kind of fruit under the law and i think that's that's where he goes then in verses five and six he really draws that conclusion out even if we're we've i think we we have left the idea of the marriage behind but that matter of bearing fruit is where he goes next in verses five and six well absolutely and and the bearing fruit
1: has a relationship with the law and i think that in our day and age today we have a tendency to think that the law is what provokes the fruit and i think that's what he's getting ready to address this issue Um, should we abandon the law because it holds us captive um it's it's not the gospel uh the gospel releases us from the law it's the gospel that produces good works so what's the point of the law And so he says, you know, while we're living in the flesh, this is sark's Paul's term for our sinful nature. So living in our sinful nature as opposed to our redeemed or regenerative nature, um, we – our sinful passions are aroused by the law. It's kind of interesting because in in the state we are in before our death to sin, in the unregenerative state, it says that our sinful passions – Uh, were stirred or aroused by the law. And this is found elsewhere, Galatians 4, 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the word passions there is the same word here. So it's kind of interesting, the irony that the law, which is uh, ostensibly designed to keep us on the straight and narrow, is abused by our fallen desires and passions. I mean, they see the limits set by God, and then it, they get enticed to trespass them. The law doesn't kill the passions, it seems. It excites them, and that's why we get the awful fruit of death. But yet even today, as I was alluding to earlier, we want to use the law to try to curb people's behavior. We want to use the law to try to to try to try uh, produce good works. Now, before I go too far, the law does do those things but uh in what way and so i think about you know my previous career was in you know uh i have a law enforcement background in a way uh and so criminal law is it the law that prevents crime or is it the terror of punishment that prevents crime in the unregenerative person in in the average person romans when he talks about uh, in chapter 13 later on when he talks about um Don't resist the authorities that God appointed. He says he's God's servant for your own good. But if you do wrong, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. It doesn't really seem like even in our own experience that law outside the Mosaic law, even does really anything but let you know that there is punishment associated with your behaviors. So our sinful passions are aroused by the law. and, And even when we try to avoid sin because of our fear of punishment it really doesn't produce good works in fact it just takes advantage of it and and paul is going to set that up
0: obviously as he goes forward Hmm. we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break you're listening to sharper iron here on worldwide kfu going to take a short break but we'll be right back please stick around Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance, Worldwide KFUO. On the next MOA weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to be sharing thoughts with you about the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus said, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Well, how do those words apply to you and to me today? I'll talk about it this Saturday and Sunday morning on Moments of Assurance Weekend, 745 a.m. Central on Worldwide KFUO. Rumination Thursdays for Law and Gospel have become popular as listeners tune in to hear conversations between Pastors Tom Baker and Wes Reimnitz on a subject that is in the news and is able to be connected to the important distinctions between law and gospel in the lives of our listeners. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 930 on KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KPO. It is Thursday, May seventh, and we're looking at Romans chapter seven, verses one through thirteen, with Pastor Phil Boo of Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, you were laying out the the negative side of things there in verse five, where where Paul talks about what the law does in our flesh that that it actually arouses our passions and and we begin to bear this fruit for death that's and and Paul's going to pick that that subject up a bit more in verse 7 and following but before he does he he gives us the positive side of it what's been happening to us since we've been released from the law now it's it's not the law that's going to to motivate or to produce this fruit these good works that God has given rather it is it is the spirit who does it in the gospel take us take us into the positive side of things on verse 6 there sure so we are released from the law,
1: having died to that which held us captive. What is that? You know, to what does that refer? Is it the law? But we are released from the law, having died to the law which held us captive. Um, maybe not. Maybe the that is more of the slavery, because in the second in the second clause of this this verse, he says we serve. But really, literally, kind of we are now slaves now in a new way. So maybe it is we are released from the law having died to the slavery to the law. Uh, Luther would say the dominion of the law, the authority of the law, uh, that we were under the authority of the law and we suffered wrath because of our inability to keep it. And it is that that we have died to. And both serve the same goal, in my opinion. That is, we have died to, whether it is just a sort of a tautology, we've died to the law, or whether it's this dominion or spirit of the, I mean, sorry, pardon me, the slavery to the law. We have died to that, um, having been put to death, as we already know, through the death of Christ. So now we can serve or be slaves, do loss, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he's been putting up these dichotomies, our life before Christ and our life after Christ, our life um, before our death and our life after our death. And now the new way of the spirit and the old way of the written code. And it's a little reversed here, but still, we have this idea that the, the new way of the spirit is that we are subjected to freedom now with Christ, with fruits that spring from grace, rather than subjected to slavery, to our sinful inability to keep the law that produced the fruit of death. As you said earlier, even though servitude, service, being bound, slavery is the terms used here, um, again, one is being enslaved to sin and the other is being bound service in service to or in slavery to Christ. And because as we know our master and it's a good and gracious thing, that's that's not a bad thing after all i mean god's still in control but this old way of the written code gives us a sense in my opinion of a list of rules and regulations i mean he's already said this in another way so he must be trying to give us some new information and the new information is that the old way of the written code evokes this rote keeping of the law where um You're not doing it out of your gratitude for your, your, your faith and life and forgiveness, but rather because you're striving to just mark off, check off the box. And so we have this, this sort of dichotomy between doing things out of love for Christ and neighbor and doing things because that's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and we see this in Corinthians, uh, second Corinthians three. He talks about uh, having confidence that, that we uh, can stand before God because of Christ, and not that it comes from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So this theme of the, the written law, it, it leads to death, but being in the spirit is what
0: leads to our,
1: to our life
0: and he's I mean he's setting up that there's a there a great connection there to second Corinthians three and really that a whole section there even forward into chapters four and five, where he talks about the the new creation in christ i mean so there, there's lots of connections there he's setting himself up even here in Romans chapter eight, this difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit he's going to draw that out in chapter eight so he's he set that up. And and so, I mean, his, his argument here in verses 1 through 6 is you've died to sin, you've died to the law, you're now living under Christ, living in his grace, that is going to bear this fruit that God has given you. And and now before he, you know, he makes that move in chapter 8 to talk about life in the spirit versus life in, in the flesh, he, he's going to address a couple of questions, and, and this will carry over in tomorrow's text as well. As he, he begins to talk now about the law, so the law so far in the book of Romans, and particularly here in these last two cha- in chapter six and this part of se- seven, has been very closely connected to sin. We've we've died to sin in chapter six. Now we've died to the law in chapter seven. It it seems perhaps that the law is the the bad guy, if I can just put it that way. And, and it seems that's where Paul. So so the question becomes: Well, well, is is the law bad? Was the, was the problem with the law? And, and how does Paul begin to address this, Pastor Boo?
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, wow, the law is the one that causing all the problems. I mean, up to this point, he's been fairly negative about the law, whether it's law in general, whether it's specific Mosaic law. And so in verse 7, as you say, he, he digresses for a moment. Or maybe it's not even a digression so much as a, a contrapuntal. He's predicting that his readers— will hear his so far negative descriptions of the Mosaic Law, and that they're going to draw that conclusion that, well, it must be the law that is the problem. So he says, is the law sin? I've been connecting to law to sin, so maybe it is. And he says, by no means, heck no. It's not, it's emphatic. It's not the law, but it's our fallen spirit's misuse of the law, which makes it seem like the problem. The the effects of the law, the negative ones, are due to our weakness, not its weakness. And and as you said in Romans 8 he sets that up. He says for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, etc. So any weakness of the law comes from our inability to keep it from our sarks, from our sinful nature, not because there's some fault in the law itself. He's already said in chapter 3 that through the law comes the knowledge of sin and so here he is applying it to himself as a personal example if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin so does this mean again now we have you know another maybe misunderstanding popping up does this mean that without the law there was no sin no we still you still sin even if you don't know that it's a sin but the law reveals just how sinful we are just how sinful for paul he realized he was We sin before we even know what to call it, Um, and this is important because there are some commentators who want to set up this example here in 7 and what follows in 8 as um, Paul in some sort of innocent period of his life, say as a child before he comes to the full knowledge of right and wrong, and that's not what that there's that's not supported by the text that's not what paul's talking about here he's talking about living outside of christ and then living within christ that the law has a role and the law is revealing his sin and then he calls back to this big irony about how the law actually is misused by our sinful natures and it's made worse uh we 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 have that even in james who who sometimes says things that seem contradictory to Paul. We know they're not, but he sometimes says things that seem like it, but he's in perfect agreement here. He says, God cannot be tempted with evil. This is in James 1. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, the sinful desire in us take the law, and honestly, see it as a challenge to, uh, to try to misuse as opposed to the goodness for which it's intended. And he's going to go on um, to to lay out more of its goodness. He says, uh, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. It didn't mean that before then he never coveted. But anyway.
0: Right, no, and so so i'm gonna we're, we're going to get there, just to, in terms of this question, yeah, it, it does seem Paul's anticipating an argument that could come up. I do think, and you you reference back to chapter three that that Paul has already laid out that that the law is there to show us our sin, and and that through the law comes the knowledge of sin and i think I think this question that Paul anticipates here is the law sin? Even goes back a little farther in chapter three when he's still making his case that all are unrighteous, Gentile and Jew alike. And and a couple of times within that section, Paul is is anticipating arguments or or he's maybe heard these arguments and responding to them when it comes to the matter of of our unrighteousness that would try to somehow place the blame on God in all this. That while God God is holding me unrighteous, that's not fair. And and I think I, I think even this question is another attempt at that sort of self-justification, that that is the law sin, this would be another one of our attempts to put the blame somewhere besides us, that, that we wouldn't have to confess our total unrighteousness before God, and we could say, no, it's not my fault, it's the law's fault. And and even, I mean, of course, this, again, fits with what Paul is doing here in chapter 7, but I think it, it harkens back to that as well, that if if we try to say, well, this is the law's fault, that's just another example of our own self-justification trying to avoid confessing our total unrighteousness before god which is where paul is you know I mean, he's he's laid out that case so beautifully in the first part of romans and he, i think it, it's coming back again here to to a degree and as he said now he's going to apply it to himself and he, he particularly seizes on this matter of of coveting in his example again so i don't know is is there a I mean just do we see Paul as a particularly covetous person, or does he just choose this as a general example? What do you think, Pastor boo? Right. well, that's my first thought. It's like why coveting?
1: you know is that uh is that something that Paul really struggled with um and maybe it may be I mean Paul's certainly coveted he's a sinner uh but it it might be better to understand that Paul is selecting a sin that of course is serious, but one that is Abundantly common, I think, in all people. It's not so much that he has a special issue or concern with coveting either within himself or with others, but rather this is something that can be appreciated by all Christians because all Christians can recall being in a situation where they have coveted or, or, or unlawfully or, or uh, unrighteously desired something that that they're not entitled to, and maybe even admitted to by Christians, you know, I I thought through this idea that if he would have used, um, even though he kind of does, but if he used adultery or murder in their strictest senses, you know, people would have been like, oh, well, that's somebody else. But it's hard. It's hard to deny for anyone to say that they've coveted. So he, he lays out this this clear case of of coveting as the example and that it is not the law that has told us, hey, go covet, but rather. The law reveals that our coveting is against what God wants for us. It is against God's law. And instead of us being shaped by the mere understanding of that law, we now are titillated by it. We're provoked to break it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then our stirrings get at work as he says, sin seizes that opportunity through the commandment to then just covet all the more.
0: Hmm. I mean then this is this argument there in verse that 's verse eight, really, it does harken back to what he was saying in verse five, as we mentioned earlier that it is our sin that takes advantage of what is there in the law, and and as Paul said, what is there in the law is good, but our sin takes advantage of it and and actually then produces all this covetousness, all these things that the law says no to our sin produces in us taking advantage of the law. And, and yeah, I think you're right. Covetousness is, is just one of those examples, especially as you think through the Ten Commandments, particularly the, when you think of the second table. You know, Commandment five, don't murder. Commandment six, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. You, maybe you've gotten to Commandments nine and 10, and you think that you've done those things. And, and Commandments nine and 10 come along and remind you that, no, your sin goes even into your thoughts. And, and you can't, I mean, unless you're totally self-disciplined, Totally self-deceptive. You can't deny that that the sin is there in your thoughts. And I, so, Paul, I think yeah, I think you're right. That's why he chooses that. But just this this concept, it, we we might want to just dwell on this for just a moment. That that the law sin takes advantage of the law and produces more sin in us. I mean, I, I think the the first example that comes to my mind, at least, is is children responding to their parents. Mom and dad say don't touch those cookies till dessert and and what do the kids want to do touch the cookies now i mean is that's kind of i think that's the the point that paul is driving at and, and but in more serious ways than touching cookies before dessert perhaps well i think that i think that's common in
1: children and and adults um i mean not to be too on the nose or too topical but you know there's a lot of uh no you can't do something right now in our society whether it's objectively good or bad or the intentions are good or bad, it's caused a lot of people to say, well, I wasn't going to do that. But now that you say that I can't, I'm going to, I want to do that even the more. And I think that we, we, we experience that throughout our lives, that whatever becomes off limits becomes more enticing. It's a movie trope. It's a, it's a, it's in literature and we even see it in our, in our daily life right now. If it's off limits, and that's the thing that I've always wanted to do, even if when I was allowed to do it, well, I really didn't have that much desire for it.
0: Mm-hmm. So let, let's—again, uh, we're we're, again, we're running short on time. This always happens. But <laughs> I, I want to keep moving then through the text. Yes. Verse 10, right? Or Well, let's see. Nine. Sorry, that's where we were. I was once alive apart from the law. Now, Pastor B, you said earlier that, that Paul's not—he's describing himself— Prior to his Damascus Road conversion to Christianity, so what is this business of, of being alive apart from the what what is he what's he saying
1: there? Well, I know it's interesting because we think of being alive in Christ and that you know we had nothing but access to death before, and and here he actually doesn't flip the script because he's been talking the whole time about dying to the law. So when he says alive, uh, uh, then he's he's talking about as you said his pre-conversion. Um, experience in life. And so this alive, though, is living his life um, unaware of sin, not bothered by the sin, not even maybe recognizing the sin within himself. Uh, and, And I think that can be said of so many unbelievers today. Well, frankly, believers too in some cases, but this idea that they're just living blissfully unaware that the lives they lead are contrary to the way the Creator wants them to live. And so what happens is when the Christian comes or the believer in love and says, what you're doing is not right, there's anger, there's, there's, uh, there's outlash because, you know, hey, wait a minute, before I knew this was a problem, I was fine. And then, of course, there comes a denial, so he says he was alive. And then the commandment came, and, of course, by extension, faith that that commandment applies to him, and sin is what came alive. And when the sin was stirred up and came alive within me, then I died. And the death here is, is now recognized. He didn't actually die. He now recognized that he is dead, dead to God. He might have felt alive. Now he's dead to God. Uh, the, the commandment which promised life. You know, we think of Leviticus 18, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And I am the Lord. There's this idea that we live by the commandments uh, and that is from God, but it proves to be death because we can't keep them perfectly. And then he brings up yet again this idea that his sinful nature just abuses it and misuses it it and it killed him. He was alive and now he recognizes that before God. He has no future
0: outside of God. And and that's the that's the deceptive nature of sin that Paul brings up here. And and we saw a hint of that in chapter six too, where Paul talked about you know, when you were when oh, let me go back to it, when verse 20 of six, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Sin is deceptive in that way, in that it, it seems to offer us this this freedom of sorts. And yet when it actually starts to to bear fruit, that fruit is is death, as Paul says. And and all of this. And again, just so we don't run out of time to look at all the text, all of this. Mm-hmm. Again, Paul brings this back in verses 12 and 13 is, is a reminder it's not the law's fault, the law's good, it's sin's fault. It's And and as we will find out very clearly tomorrow, it's it's my fault. Take us into these final verses, Pastor Boo. Yeah, absolutely, Unless there's any confusion, that's what he's laying out.
1: The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. It's us who aren't uh, holy, righteous, or good outside of Christ. And <clears throat> so we see here, that the law not only tells us what we're supposed to not do and supposed to do, which our sinful nature sees as a bad thing, but it's holy because it's really a description of the life God wants for us. If we could possibly live the law as God wanted us to, that's the, that's the life that he has set out for us. It's really a good and righteous thing. So he says – then he thinks, okay, now they're going to think that if I say the law is good, then why are good things? Bringing death. That's the next contrapuntal, and it's a little different. So he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, emphatic, no way. It was the sin, like I've been telling you, Paul says, producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. I love that. The fact that God commands against it reveals that it is actually a sin, that it's rebellion against God. And, of course, rebellion against God leads to death. So it seems bad because it says this is revealing you to be a sinner and rebel against God, but it is good. Um, So it's not the law that's bringing death, but rather just revealing that my sin is leading me to death and the commandment then might become sinful beyond measure. That is in view of uh, our old natures who want to be alive and blissfully unaware of our sin against God. Well, then commandments seem pretty sinful, and, and that's certainly something that Christians face today in a world that would much rather just continue to live blissfully unaware, alive in their sin, because they see death as bad. But we see death both in Christ as access to new life, and frankly, even when we depart this world, while death is never good, we know that there is something better waiting for us, um, and of course we pray that Christ returns
0: before that happens amen come lord jesus yeah in in christ death has been transformed our death to the law has set us free to live under christ pastor phil boo is the pastor at christ lutheran church in hebron connecticut helping us this morning with romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. pastor boo great discussion today thanks for your time thank you for having me you have been set free from life under the law because you have died to it you have died with Christ. Christ's death, his body put to death on the tree, raised three days later, is your freedom. Your freedom. Not because the law was bad, it was your sin, my sin. That was the problem. Christ has set us free in himself, in his body, on the tree, so that now we are free, free to confess who we are, not trying to justify ourselves as if it's God's fault. It's my fault, it's your fault. In his grace, Christ comes and forgives that sin, that guilt, that fault in us, and makes us his own. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.